Section 31 of the Early Hanoverians by Edward Ellis Morris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Book 3, Chapter 3, English Literature, Part 1. Section 1, The Poets. In describing any short period of history, we are always met with the difficulty that no period stands alone. It has its roots in the past, it leaves influences that will work upon the future. Like the second volume of a three-volume novel, it is unintelligible without the other volumes. The age that preceded the accession of George I is famous in literature and has the special name of the Augustan Age. We are sometimes, however, apt to forget that not only did not all the poets and writers who flourished in the reign of Queen Anne die with the Queen, but that some of their most famous works were written after her death. Pope was at work on the translation of Homer and had not yet written the Dunciad or the Essay on Man. Swift had not written the Drapier's Letters nor Gulliver's Travels. Defoe had not published Robinson Crusoe. Addison's official career had begun, and the spectator was at an end. Addison was already giving up to office what was meant for mankind, and instead of writing more papers like those in The Spectator, was secretary to the Lord's Justices who ruled England until King George arrived, and three years afterwards was, for a short time, Secretary of State. The power and influence of literary men during the first half of the 18th century were very remarkable. Perhaps never at any other time was patronage so discriminating or so liberal. Not only did literary men live on terms of intimacy with politicians, who liked playing the part of Mycenas, but his writings, and especially political pamphlets or elusive prologues to plays, were having great weight with the people, the politicians who were helped paid for the help with appointments. In modern days, patronage is dead except that of the general public, and literary men do not look to places in the public service as a wage for their writings. The sale of their books is the legitimate reward of their influence. The reign of George II may be described as lying between the days of patronage by the great and the creation of a genuine interest in literature on the part of the public. The poetical career of James Thompson falls wholly within the reigns of the first two Georges. This sweet poet of the year, as Burns describes him, was born in 1700, the year that Dryden died. It may be mentioned that his birthplace was near the source of the Tweed, so that he was a native of the charmed border country which a century later produced the poetry of Sir Walter Scott. Thompson's father was a minister and it was intended that the boy should follow in his father's footsteps. But whilst he was attending divinity lectures at Edinburgh University, the professor set his class a paraphrase of a psalm. Thompson's exercise was so poetical that the professor, after complimenting him on it, told him that if he wished to be of use as a minister, he must keep a tight rein on his imagination. This remark seems to have turned the young poet against a profession in which his favorite occupation would only do him harm. He made up his mind to follow the vocation of a poet, and in order that he might have a wider field, 
he determined to leave Edinburgh for London. The poem on which Thompson's fame as a poet depends is The Seasons. The different parts of this poem were written and published separately in the following order, winter, summer, spring, autumn. The meter is blank verse. Both in the meter and in the character of the poetry, Thompson was original enough not to follow the poetry then in vogue, not to be of the school of Pope. As the poet of rural nature, he is the predecessor of Cooper. His verse has faults that are easily apparent, an exuberant and sometimes inharmonious diction, prosaic commonplaces in bombastic language, but we may agree with Wordsworth that Thompson was a true poet, for he had an insight into nature, and a power of so painting it as to make his readers marvel when he shows them its wonders that they had never seen them for themselves before. Besides the seasons, Thompson wrote several plays which cannot be described as successful or as deserving of success. A mask called Alfred, in the writing of which he was joined with a friend, a minor poet named Mallet, has the advantage of containing a well-known song, Rule Britannia. But it is not quite certain to which of the two friends the credit of it belongs. Perhaps the only other poem of Thompson's worth remembering is The Castle of Indolence, written in the Spenserian stanza, and a very good imitation of the manner of Spencer. The good things that were then so liberally bestowed on men of letters were not lacking to Thompson. He obtained a sinecure office in the court of chancery, as well as a pension from Frederick, Prince of Wales. When his first appointment lapsed on the death of a friendly Lord Chancellor, Thompson was made Surveyor-General of the Leeward Islands, but he never went near them. Thompson died in 1748, the year of the Peace of Aix-la-Chapelle. In the later years of his life, he had lived chiefly at Richmond in Surrey, where he is buried. After his death, Lord Littleton, a friend, brought out one of Thompson's plays with a prologue that contained the following warm eulogy on his character and writings. Oft in this crowded house, with just applause, you heard him teach fair virtue's purest laws. For his chaste muse employed her heaven-taught lyre, none but the noblest passions to inspire. Not one immoral, one corrupted thought, one line which dying he could wish to blot. Young's Night Thoughts, or, according to its full title, The Complaint or Night Thoughts on Life, Death, and Immortality, published near the middle of the century, for a long time held a very high place among English poems. During this century its reputation has dwindled. The poem is written in blank verse in imitation of Milton, and is said to have been inspired by the melancholy caused by the death of Young's wife and two children, following each other within a very short period. It consists of reflections on the serious subjects named in the title, interspersed with short tales by way of episodes. A reader feels that throughout the poem there is a constant straining after effect. Antithesis is too frequently employed. Now and then the poem seems to creep along the ground of prose. But noble thoughts and beautiful passages occur, and some lines have become the constant quotation of common speech. Procrastination is the thief of time. All men think all men mortal but themselves. The greatest poet living at the middle of the century was Thomas Gray. 
the only reason why the epithet great seems incongruous as applied to gray is the very small bulk which his poems occupy less than forty-five small pages contain the whole of them he was a most fastidious writer it was said of virgil that he wrote many verses in the morning but reduced them to a few before night most assuredly quality is of the first importance in poetry and Gray's few pages bear marks of polish in every line. Perhaps it is true that Gray thought too much of the form and not enough of the matter. The elegy written in a country churchyard is probably the best known. What pains the poet has manifestly taken? It may be true that the thoughts are obvious, but on account of the grace of its language the poem will be read, remembered, and loved when longer poems with more original thoughts are forgotten. Gray's odes, such as the Bard and the Progress of Poesy, well deserve the admiration which they have received from every critic except Dr. Johnson. One charm of the poetry of Gray is that almost every line reminds us of something either in an ancient or in a modern poet. It is not a plagiarism, but a suggestion. Want of originality, however, keeps Gray out of the first rank of poets. Section 2 the novelists. The middle of the 18th century was not a great time for poets, but it has hardly ever been surpassed as a creative period of English prose. There is a cluster of great novelists, followed later by a cluster of great historians, besides the unique figure of Dr. Johnson, and a little later the equally remarkable Edmund Burke. The reign of George II is the time when the modern novel may be said to have been born, and in our days novels are numerous enough and influential enough to make us interested in their first beginnings. Perhaps Robinson Crusoe and the numerous shorter tales which Defoe gave somewhat earlier to the world may from one side dispute the claim, but these are too deficient in sentiment and in variety of human interests to be rightly classed as novels. Samuel Richardson was the first novelist. His three novels, Pamela, Clarissa Harlow, and Sir Charles Grandison, differ from novels of our day, chiefly in their length, and in being written in a series of letters. Richardson was not the man who would have been expected beforehand to turn novelist. He was a London printer's apprentice, whose diligence was rewarded by a partnership, and later by a fortune. He was the first printer of the journals of the House of Commons. In character, he was kind and benevolent, but very vain, fonder of the society of ladies than of men, and especially greedy of the flattery of women. Accident, it is said, first made Richardson a novelist. He had been engaged to write a series of letters as models of epistolary style, and at the same time to serve as a sort of manual of morality. And the thought occurred to him that more interest would attach to the letters if they were made continuous. Hence came Pamela, or Virtue Rewarded, which at once acquired an extraordinary popularity. It is a story of a young country girl of the humbler class, resisting manifold temptations and ultimately triumphing. The success of this led him to write Clarissa Harlow the best of his books. There is plenty of pathos in Pamela, but much more in Clarissa Harlow, which has been described as a novel not of action and enterprise, but of character and sentiment. Sir Charles Grandison is intended to portray the perfect gentleman, 
but with his eternal bows and constant formalities, he is a very wearisome personage. The three novels represent three classes of society, Pamela, the lower, Clarissa Harlow, the middle, and Sir Charles Grandison, the upper ranks. Now of the third, Richardson knew nothing, so that he had to evolve his notion of it out of his inner consciousness. Sir Charles is the sort of aristocrat that Richardson himself, the retired tradesman, would have been. End of section 31